Okay, we're in Acts chapter 5. There's a long bit of scripture that we're thinking about this morning. I can't possibly read it all. So I'm going to dip into kind of a key turning point in it, just read a part of that, and then we'll talk about the larger section of Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 and what I've got to say. But I'm going to read in the middle, dip into the middle of Acts chapter 5. I'm going to start to read at verse 12 and read through to verse 27. This is God's word. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, The captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And ending at verse 27, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts. Amen. It's a mark of the greatest leaders that they never play down the scale of the opposition they face. On the 10th of May, 1940, Winston Churchill became prime minister. At a time in the history of our nation, which is characterized by the title of a recent movie about that particular point in time, and the movie was entitled Darkest Hour. On the 13th of May, just a few days after he was appointed, he assembled his cabinet and then he addressed the House of Commons with these famous words. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Here was a leader who was not going to discount the level of difficulty that he and the nation that he led faced at this particular moment of time. And Jesus was exactly the same. On the night before he was crucified, as we know, he spent some time with his closest associates. They had a meal together. They celebrated what we now call the Lord's Supper. And they had a series of conversations about Jesus' life and about what was going to happen next. 
And at the end of that conversation, Jesus prays a prayer. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us. And just before he prays that prayer, he says these words. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble. Trouble. And it was only a short time after the birth of the church that trouble came big time. And it just doesn't seem right. After all, if we do the things that Jesus told us to do, we sort of expect God to show up for us in the moment when there are issues, when there are difficulties, because we're doing what he told us to do, he'll be there and, and, and he'd take our part. But it's not like that. And just in case we think it is, there is Acts chapter 4 and 5 for us to reflect on. The story that we're thinking about today begins with the event that we were thinking about last Sunday, the healing at the beautiful gate of the temple. Following that healing and the hugely visible reaction of the man who was healed, so visible and so audible that there's even a children's chorus about it, which you may have learned when you were younger. Because of that and the reaction of the man who was healed, the disciples taught in the temple courts about Jesus. And as part of what they said, they mentioned the fact that, that this man's healing was due to Jesus, who had died, yes, but who had been raised from the dead by God. This led to their arrest and imprisonment overnight. Then they attended a hearing where they were quizzed about their behavior, and the council was at a loss to know what to do with them. So they ordered the disciples to be silent and threatened them with grave consequences if they disobeyed, and then they let them go. Instead of being silent, the disciples gathered together they pray for courage to be even bolder in the future and ask the Lord for signs and wonders to confirm their choice. It was quite a moment, significant moment in the movement of which these uh, disciples were the leaders. And it was marked not just by their prayer and their request for boldness, but by the fact that the building in which they were sitting having this prayer time was physically shaken and the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit again. God answered their prayer. After that, the disciples taught in the temple courts. We read a bit about it a moment or two ago in that brief reading. And uh, after they had taught and crowds had gathered, there followed signs and wonders. People were healed. All sorts of amazing things took place. And everybody, not only in Jerusalem, but in, in the areas around Jerusalem, knew about it, brought their sick to the disciples. And there was that amazing line in the text, and every single one of them were healed. It was quite a moment. But it aroused the jealousy and the anger of the religious leadership. And so the disciples, this time more of them than just Peter and John who were arrested first time round, larger number it appears to be, were arrested and imprisoned again. But during the night, an angel of the Lord releases them from prison. And then there follows the farce, the comical farce of what I read to you a few moments ago. 
They're placed in prison. The prison doors are locked. A guard is placed on the jail. The following morning, the Sanhedrin meets. It was illegal for them to have a trial at night. So they meet the following morning, and they send the guards to bring the prisoners to trial. When the guards get to the prison, the prison is locked. There are guards outside, but when the guards open the doors and they go in, there's nobody there. And they don't know what to do. They go back and they say they're not there. And, and it says that the leadership thought, what, what do we do now? And then somebody comes in to say, hey, you know those guys you put in prison? Well, they're teaching in the temple courts. So they send the, the guard to go and find them. And they do, and the disciples come this time voluntarily, not under force. And once again, they are quizzed. Why are you defying what we told you to do the last time you were here? And why are you blaming us for the death of Jesus of Nazareth? And at that moment in the, in the Sanhedrin, some of the people there wanted to kill the disciples there and then. But a guy who was probably the most significant rabbi, the most significant religious teacher of that generation who happened to be there said, hold on a minute. That's not a good idea. Apart from the fact to get us into serious trouble with the Roman authorities, setting that aside for a moment, these things happen. You know, movements come and go. Think back, and he mentions a couple of them. You know, they came, seemed like a big deal. After a while, it all disappeared. The Romans killed them, and that was the end of that. So if we get ourselves all worked up over this, we might be getting worked up over something that's only going to last for a short time, and then it'll go. Or, he said, alternatively, suppose just, I know you don't want to do this, but just for a moment, suppose they're right, and we're wrong. And that actually God is on their side and not ours. Then it won't just be people that we're fighting against. We'll be fighting against God and none of us want to get ourselves into that position. So my advice to you is, don't do anything. Just let's wait and see what happens. And, and he won the day. And that's what they did. They called them in, they threatened them again, they flogged them, and then they let them go. And the text says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, it's quite a story, those, those two chapters I've tried to summarize quickly. You can read them for yourselves later. And the kind of, you know, the interview scenes before the Sanhedrin, they, they look like, they read like, they have the tension of one of those interview scenes on Line of Duty, you know, where you get them inside the glass cube and they quiz them, you know, and it kind of feels like that. It has that element of tension about it. It is the first persecution. What do we learn from it? I want to mention three things that seem to me to be in the text. When you do what Jesus told you to do, first of all, don't assume that religious authorities will be impressed. We are all aware that the early Christians were persecuted at various periods by the state before the conversion of Constantine in the fourth century. There were various waves of persecution carried out by the Roman government, and Christians suffered gravely under those persecutions. However, in the book of the Acts, the persecuting authorities are not the authorities of state, but religious authorities. They were people who believed in God themselves. Now, this seems truly incredible. 
But it's the fact that it's what is happening here in these couple of chapters that we're looking at today. These same people who are persecuting the believers, who had them hauled before the court, who had them flogged and threatened, these same people were in absolutely no doubt that at the hands of these apostles, something remarkable had taken place. We read from their own lips in Acts 4, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they, the disciples, have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. So these persecuting religious authorities knew and accepted that something remarkable had taken place. Not only so, but but even leaving aside the fact that this miracle had happened, incredible act of healing, something else had also happened on that day. As Peter said to them in court, kind of turning, turning the accusation against uh, the, 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 the religious leaders, rulers and elders of the people, he said, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame. The man who was healed that day was over 40 years old and he may never have walked in his life until that moment So even on the human level, forget about the miracle for a moment, even on the human level, this was an act of human kindness that was truly outstanding. Who could possibly take exception to that? Is that not something you would do if you could do it for somebody in this man's position at the beautiful gate of the temple? It was a simple act of kindness. Yet these religious leaders saw the compassion. They saw the miracle. And yet they reacted to it with hostility and defensiveness. Why? What is wrong with these people? Craig Keener comments, some later Jewish teachers argued that miracles would not validate another's teaching if it did not accord with their own reasoning from Scripture and tradition. They could see the evidence of their eyes, but they denied its validity because they differed from the disciples in their understanding of the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing has changed. 2,000 years of Christian history, nothing has changed. I retweeted just this past week something from Esau McCauley, who's assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in the United States. Here's what he said. The darkest parts of Christian social media are the places where people have convinced themselves that their sincerely held doctrines release them from the responsibility to display the fruit of the Spirit. Virtue is also biblical. We hear a lot from Christian leaders about the culture and about the hostility of the culture in which we now live to our faith and our Savior. But my experience of leadership in Christian ministry for over 40 years is that you are much more likely to receive abuse from other Christian leaders than from people outside the church. A number of years ago in Carnmoney, we had uh, Pete Gregg with us, and uh, He spoke for us over the weekend, and on the final Sunday evening of of that service, he did something that he has done to other people he calls his friends. I happen to be one of the unfortunate people whom he regards as a friend, 
And at the end of the service that evening, unknown to me before he did it, he had me prayer surfed from the front of the church to the back. Now, prayer surfing is pretty much the same as what happens when you're at concerts and stuff like that, except it's meant to be an act of prayer. And I literally went from the front of my church to the back of my church with my feet not touching the ground. Over the next couple of weeks, I had two really completely opposite reactions to that event. On the one hand, virtually before I got up the next morning, I had phone calls from various local newspapers wanting to publish a story about it. They were all excited about it. Does anybody have any photographs and so on? And I was trying to fend off the Belfast Telegraph and a couple of other people. I did really didn't want to make a big deal about this because I knew what would also happen, and it did happen within a matter of hours as well, on various websites, Twitter and Facebook accounts, there were all sorts of interesting interpretations of what had happened to me from a, inverted commas, Christian point of view. No, it was all okay. Nobody died. But you see the point. reality is that if you do what God is doing, what God tells you to do, don't assume that religious authorities will always be impressed. It's a sad tragedy, history of the Christian church, that often its leadership finds itself on the wrong side. Second thing is this, when you do what Jesus told you to do, don't forget that we are engaged when we do that in witness when Rick set out the context and the background to this series a number of weeks ago, if you were present, you will remember that what he said was that uh, the book of the Acts is largely a book about witness. That, that's what it says, right? At the beginning, Jesus sends out his disciples. He said, uh, you know, wait uh, until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so the rest of the book is about witnesses, about how this instruction of Jesus is carried out. And the first act of witness is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which we've looked at. The second act of witness is the healing at the temple gate that we looked at last week. And the third act of witness was in a courtroom before religious authorities. Witness about what? You can be called to be a witness to all sorts of things. You might have seen a road traffic accident, for example. Um, You might have been present when a neighbor's house was burgled. You could be called to give witness, to give testimony about what you saw and what actually happened. So what is the act of witness that's going on here? What are these people witnessing about? Well, the answer is they're witnessing about Jesus. Well, you say, well, you didn't need to tell me that. I kind of figured that out. But here's the thing. If what we are called to do is to witness about Jesus, then that means that how we do it matters as much as anything we say or do, whether preaching or healing or whatever. It matters not only what we do or what we say, but how we do it and how we say it because we are witnessing to Jesus. As you watch the disciples testify before the council on these two occasions, in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, you see something truly remarkable. Because as you read the text, you discover that the council is completely unimpressed with the miracle and the teaching. That's why the disciples are before the court. But they are deeply impressed with the people through whom the man was healed 
and these people who were teaching what they regarded as heresy in the temple courts. They were deeply impressed by these people. It says in Acts 4, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The courage that they saw from people who ought to have been terrified and submissive before them drew attention to Jesus. They took note that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't, they were impressed by these people, but what actually they began to think about was not just these people before them, but the Jesus who had obviously done something to these people to enable them to be what they were. Wow. Our witness is to Jesus And we must work really hard not to let him down by how we react to the people who oppose us. In AD 155, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, the pupil and successor of St. John himself, and now a very old man, was burned at the stake for his refusal to confess Caesar as Lord. Invited to renounce Christ during his trial, Polycarp said this, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? At this key moment, in his words and in his actions, Polycarp, at great personal cost, remembered whose witness he was. That's hard. Because our natural human reaction, well, let me be more personal, my natural human reaction is to take the opposition on, to use every weapon at my disposal to try to get them on their own terms. And if you have any kind of ability with words or in other ways, you can do that. It's not that difficult. There's a great deal of personal satisfaction on it, especially if you win. It's not so much fun if you lose, but that's my natural reaction. But it's not what Jesus did, and it's not what we should do if we are his witnesses. We are not here to give as good as we get. It isn't about us. It's about Jesus. John Stott comments, whether they were preaching to the crowd in the temple or answering accusations in court, the disciples' preoccupation was not with their own defense, but the honor and glory of their Lord. It wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. It troubles me sometimes. The Christians seem to be the ones always asking for exceptions to be made for them. That the law should recognize and give place to and so on and so forth and that we shouldn't have to conform to things that other people have to conform to when the government makes new laws. That wasn't what Peter and John did. Literally, when challenged by the council, 
They, and, and told by the council, look, you've got to stop doing this. You've got to stop teaching this. If you don't stop doing this and stop teaching this, you're going to be in serious trouble if you ever appear before us again. Now get out and be silent. And to translate Peter's words literally, this is what he said. He said, we are not able not to speak. It's a double negative. We don't do double negatives in the English language. Double negatives end up as being a positive, as you know from your grammar classes at school, which nobody does anymore. But anyway, it's a double negative. And in the languages of Bible times, double negatives were really strong statements. They were saying we can't help ourselves because of what we have seen Jesus do and heard Jesus say, doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what you do, we are not able not to speak. Jesus removed that from us. It's not about us. When there is opposition to our faith, it's not about us. It's not about the church. It's not even about the scriptures. It's about Jesus. And therefore, how we do what we do matters. Just how they stood there, just how they spoke, just how their lives had been used to heal this man at the gate of the temple and all the other people who had been brought to them over the days that followed. Just how they did it stunned their accusers in court and it made them think about Jesus. If we do what Jesus tells us to do, don't assume that religious authorities will be impressed. And don't forget that we are engaged in witness. This isn't about us. This is about Jesus. And lastly, don't expect to be repaid in kind. Such is the joy in the ranks of the disciples in this text that you might miss the horrible experience they endured. The very end of the story, it says they went out rejoicing. You know, they were singing their hearts out because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. But hey, don't miss the bit where it says that they suffered for the name. They had, they had poured out kindness, and a man's life had been radically altered. Others had followed in the days ahead. Something had happened that was truly remarkable, and signs and wonders followed in answer to their prayers. But in return, in return, they were arrested twice. They were thrown in prison twice. They were subjected to a traumatic judicial process, and then they were flogged. Now, just hold that for a moment. The temple police, captain of the temple police and his officers who went to arrest them are, are known at this particular point in history for their violence. They were a bunch of sadistic bullies, it would appear. And so we can assume that the disciples suffered greatly at their hands during their arrest and imprisonment before they ever got to the court in the first place. But after the traumatic trials were over, they were flogged. And the text just says it. A flogging at the hands of Jewish religious authorities involved being bound to a post or laid on the ground and being beaten with a calf, a calf leather strap, 26 strokes on the back and 13 strokes on the chest. Now, Peter and John were fishermen. They were fit and strong, probably. But this, by any standard, was a severe beating. 
It was undeserved and it was unfair. And it might have deterred lesser men and women than them. But we read, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What the disciples did was never, ever about an earthly reward. They got that. They understood that they could pour out kindness and they would receive suffering and beatings and difficulties in response. They would not be repaid in kind. At the first hearing before the council, they said, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? See, once we know who we are serving, then we know from whom to expect a reward. Disciples never thought that they would necessarily be blessed by religious leaders who had condemned and crucified their master. They never expected it. They were serving someone else, and it was from that someone else that they expected to be blessed and rewarded. That's not easy. If we are the kind of people that Jesus has changed us to be, we are kind, we are considerate, we are compassionate, we love, we serve, we sacrifice. And it would be really good if people responded in kind and recognized the fact that we're doing something worthwhile and decent and good. And it's hard whenever that's not what you get and you have to wait beyond the experiences of this life for the Lord to give a crown, for the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not easy working in an environment like that. I sometimes think that we are rewards for a generation of people who never met us. Because every time you go to one of those amazing National Trust properties here in Northern Ireland or elsewhere throughout the United Kingdom, and you go to see the gardens, and they are truly magnificent. Huge trees stretching up into the sky, incredible layouts, lakes, and, and, and uh, walled gardens, and all sorts of creations like that. Here's the thing. People who planted those gardens never saw them like that. They died long before these trees matured. They never saw the lakes that they had constructed full of salmon and trout, and they never saw the awe and the beauty that these gardens created around the houses that had been built. They died long before that happened. We look at them now and we are stunned and amazed at what they did. In a sort of a strange way, we are their reward. But hundreds of years had to pass before it could happen. Didn't stop them designing, planting, looking towards that future when one day somebody would see this in reality, the way they saw it in their mind's eye when they planned it in the first place. And in a way, that's what we're being asked to do as followers of Jesus. That in this world, we will not necessarily see the outcome or the blessing of what we are doing when we do what Jesus told us to do. 
The reward will not be here. It will not be now. It will be in another place and another time. And once you get that straight in your mind, then you understand that you don't expect it to happen now. What do we learn from the story? If we do what Jesus told us to do, we should not assume that religious authorities will be impressed. Sometimes they will be our biggest enemies. When we do what Jesus told us to do, we should not forget that we are engaged in witness. This is not about us. This is about him. Therefore, how we do what we do is really important. And if we do what Jesus told us to do, then we do not expect to be repaid in kind. We may pour out kindness. We may pour out sacrifice. We may pour out compassion and love. We do not necessarily expect to get it in response. We know who we serve. And it is from him we expect a reward in his time and in his place. So it leaves me with two questions. Asked not by me, but by someone who in my generation suffered persecution at the hands, in his case, of civil authorities. Some of you may have read Richard Vernbrandt's book, Tortured for Christ, which he talks about the experience of being in communist jails, the huge amount of suffering that he, his fellow pastors and their families endured under the communist regimes of Eastern Europe in a previous generation. And there are two questions that keep surfacing again and again and again in Vernbrandt's writing, not only in that book, but in other writings and talks that he gave. And so I guess today when we're thinking about a situation of persecution, it's fitting that the challenge that comes to you and me this morning should, could, could, should come from someone not like me who hasn't experienced that, but from someone like him who has. There are two questions that keep coming up in his writing again and again. The first one is this. In his writing, he was hugely critical of Western Christians, you and me. And he was critical of them, first of all, because he said they never really thought about the persecuted church. They never really thought about what they could do, what they could have done in the first place to prevent the communist takeover of Eastern Europe that plunged these people into so many years of darkness and night. Taking seriously the privileges and freedoms and opportunities that we have in the Western world to stand up for brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer like this elsewhere. That's a challenge that comes to you and me this morning, reading about what happened to Peter and John and other disciples. But what about the people who are experiencing this right here, right now, right across the planet? It has been said that the 20th century was possibly one of the most costly centuries in terms of persecution and death for believers across the world. Things are not getting better from that perspective. Are we standing up for them? For persecuted people, Christians, and perhaps others who suffer injustice across our planet right now, when we have the freedom to speak, when we have opportunities to use our resources to help them, are we doing it? And then the second challenge. Again and again, as writing, Vernbrand keeps coming back to one clear thing the massive difference between Christians in Eastern Europe 
living under hostile regimes, Christians in Western Europe with freedom and independence like us. One massive contrast between the two, and it's not what you might expect. He said, here's what it is. We loved the communists, and they didn't. What do you mean by that? Over and over in his books, he tells the story of the brutality of some of these guards and others who looked after him, looked after, in inverted commas, when they were in prison. The reality, of course, of communist regimes and other regimes of that nature in the world in which we live is that people keep falling out of favor, and sometimes the guards who had been so brutal to the prisoners ended up sharing the same cells when they fell out of favor with their masters. And when the guards came to share their cells like them, they were beaten, they were abused, they were not fed. Who was it that bound up their wounds? Who was it that saved pieces of food to feed them? It was the Christian prisoners whom they had previously abused. And Wernbrand said, that's the difference between Western Christians and us. They didn't love the communists. We did. And there's the challenge. How do you react to people who make life hard for you because you're a Christian? How do you deal with them? Because how you respond to them matters because this is not about us. It's not about the church, not even about the Bible. This is about Jesus. And how we do what we do will either influence them to think about him or not. Vern Brandt said the difference between Eastern and Western Christians was that they loved the communists, the people who persecuted them, caused them so much suffering. They loved them, and we didn't.